0: Greyhound leader to Trap One. Emergency alert to all radar stations.
1: Welcome to the Trap One podcast, Ascension of the Cyberman episode. I'm Mark. I am Jason. and I'm Chris. Thanks very much for joining me, guys. Uh, so, Jason, you were at the Gallifrey One convention again a weekends ago. How was that?
0: Uh, It was great,
2: we got there before coronavirus became a pandemic, so we did not lose too many bookings on account of the virus.
1: That's good news?
2: Absolutely. Uh, It was Christopher Eccleston's first appearance at a United States convention, as far as I know, so that was pretty, pretty epic. Imagine him on stage in a ballroom that fits about 3,000 people, just telling stories about his time on the show and telling other personal stories. So that was really, really well received. And then they advertised on the Sunday afternoon that they were going to be having a special video presentation in the main ballroom at 4 p.m. So, of course, people were lining up early to make sure they got a seat. And I was placed on a 3 p.m. panel to which about 11 people showed up out of a room that seats about 100 because everybody wanted to be in the main ballroom to catch the special video presentation which arrived up being two special video presentations. The first was a screening of Episode 8. This was two weeks ago when Episode 8 had just come out. So I got to see it for the first time in a ballroom full of 3,000 screaming Doctor Who fans. So when the Cyberman showed up halfway through, the place went nuts. And you couldn't hear anything on the screen for the next five minutes because everybody was cheering. And then after that, there was another special video presentation. I don't know how it happened, but somebody managed to get Stephen Moffat and Chris Chimnall, and Jody Whitaker to record a special shout-out to the convention on video. So oh, people went cool. nuts when Jodie Whitaker said the name Gallifrey One.
1: That sounds fantastic. And, uh, and you, got, you got to see the um, the Chris Eccleston panel?
2: Yes. Uh, so they did two panels to make sure that everyone got to see him. So it was two mm-hmm. panels with two different interviewers where he was asked the same questions. So I went to the first one, which was on Saturday evening, the second one was the first panel Sunday morning, and there was no guarantee that I was waking up in time to see it. So I got to see him on Saturday night at his first panel. Yeah. Uh, the biggest revelation for me, though, was Mark Strixen, who I have never actually seen at a convention before. And he played Turlo, for those of you who were born after 1983. And he has had a pretty epic second career as a producer of wildlife documentaries. And he's the guy who discovered Steve Irwin crocodile hunter. who was the first guy to cast him in a documentary. And for his panel, it was one hour of him just telling these amazing stories about traveling the world and his near death experiences with deadly animals. So I was not expecting that. It was just terrific. It was almost the highlight of the convention for me, outside of Christopher Eccleston. And he also remains a big Doctor Who fan, even though he hasn't been, you know, a cast member on the show in, you know, how many decades. He actually gave a very lengthy discourse about what the murka from Warriors of the Deep is based on, and he started doing an impersonation of the murka in front of the panel room, which is—it's got to be a career highlight for me. Yeah, watching Mark Strickson impersonate
0: the Merca.
1: Brilliant, cool, and uh, and Chris, welcome back to the podcast.
0: Thank you very much indeed for having me Lovely to be on with you and Jason um, And i got to say, I have no stories that go anywhere near being as interesting as Chris Eccleston and Mark Strickson um, So, you know, I'm afraid... I was—I I did like the sound of, of Chris Eccleston's pan I, I caught it on Twitter. I caught bits and pieces on Twitter, and it looked like he—he—he he, he really gave of himself. You know, the—the—the you, the, the feeling was, I think, that uh, his time with Doctor Who was finished. Now, I'm really glad it hasn't. Actually, I'm really glad to see that he's—he's he's embracing fandom and actually. It's what I think it was Katie Manning called it the the, the 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 kiss of Doctor Who. How it how it you know it warms you and helps you. And I, it's lovely to hear that Chris Eccleston's finding that because I got to tell you he was my absolute he was he was brilliant. That first season of Doctor Who is some of the best science fiction I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, he's uh, he really helped to, to to kind of sell it to a new generation, didn't he? he, he brought it back. Um, and it was an immediate hit. Uh, we've got a lot to thank him for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think if it if it had been any any other actor, we may not have been here now talking about it because he just got it off to such a powerful, you know, passionate and and, and what's the word I'm looking for? Um, he gave it gravitas and he mm-hmm. gave it he gave it a sense of belief. And I think we still we still cling on to that. That 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 doctor. He he, he sent a long message. You know, he sent a powerful message in.
2: The word that was used during the panels that he gave the show instant credibility because he was an established name
1: mm-hmm. and
2: he brought his show. That was with the word I himself. was
0: groping for. That was the word I was groping for. Credibility. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there, there was the worry when I saw Billy Piper being cast, there was the worry of, you know, is this gonna be some sort of pastiche or is it gonna be a bit of a sort of a camp, um, you know, camp homage? And it, it wasn't. It was it was brilliant, serious, committed, intelligent television making right, right from the get go. Mm. Yeah, and he- I want
2: to give I want to give a shout out to two other panels that I was on from the guys who are making the Blu-rays and the animated DVDs for the classic series. So there were two panels back to back with Russell Minton and Gary Russell. Uh, one about the upcoming season fourteen Blu-ray, from which they showed several clips as well as season twenty-six. And also the upcoming DVD animations for the Faceless Ones and Fury from the Deep. i got to tell you guys, the level of attention and care and love that is being put into these DVDs of 30, 40, 50-year-old episodes is astounding. And I'm going to go argue that you're not going to see that level of commitment to the DVD range in any other level of fandom. Mm. The effort they are putting into Fury from the Deep, which... I would venture to say, is one of the more obscure stories from the classic series because nobody's ever gotten to see anything from it. And the season 26 and season 14 Blu-rays and the documentaries they're adding on, you can spend hours and hours watching those Blu-rays when they come out and never even watch the episode themselves. That's how much stuff they're putting on the discs. I just can't overstate how lucky we Doctor Who fans are to have people like that running the DVD range. And they brought their clips to Galley and... When you think it couldn't get any better, they go and show a colorized version of the Daleks Master Plan Episode 2. So, just amazing, amazing experience, amazing experience.
1: Yeah, at the Warp Convention last year, we were lucky enough to see uh, Chris Chapman and and Toby Haydock on stage together, and yeah, just the the passion and the fun that they bring, I think, to the features that they're they're putting on the Blu-ray sets. Um, it's uh, sure, like you say, it's in such good hands, isn't it? Um, it's. Uh, I was a little bit dubious at first when the Blu-rays were announced because obviously I already own them on on, on DVD, and, and it doesn't seem like that long since I replaced my VHS copies with my Blu-rays. Um, but it's it's so worth it for for all the extra stuff that you get with it. Um, it re- really really adds to the experience. Definitely. Uh, so, uh, Chris, how have you been enjoying Series Twelve so far? Um, for me, it has been an absolute uh, a, a complete change of pace from Series Eleven,
0: which I have to say I'm delighted about. Um, season Eleven didn't really work for me. Oh, um, that's cool. There's going to be series that you dip into and dip out of. There's, you know, it, 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 it just never. I never felt it had that moment. Every season, every Doctor has a moment. And, and, and I didn't get it last year. I, I, I got moments from Graham um, and, and I got moments from Yaz, but I never got a moment from, from, from the doctor, which was a shame really. And this season, I have to say they've, they've, they've at least got my interest. they've grabbed me and, and they they're trying to tell a story. I still think we're seeing some problems with the storytelling and I still think there's some issues here. but it, at least you want to, you know I want to know what happens next week. Mm-hmm. I want to see what happens, and, and and if if that only is is what they're doing, then then that's great, isn't it? That's what the that's what an artist does. They try to command your attention for the amount of time they're telling the story. So in that sense, I think it's it's been it's, it's been much much better. I still haven't quite gelled with Georgie as the doctor, um, but again, that's going to be a slow burn, I think. And one of the things that I'm really interested to do is leave this a few weeks, leave this, you know, leave this be. And then come back to it and have a rewatch of the season in its entirety. I think it'll, it'll be a much richer experience then.
1: Yeah, it's like that. Uh, when, whenever there's a, a kind of a mystery like that, um, watching it back again and, and then picking up the clues um, and, and all the rest of it is—it is uh, it's, it's a completely different way of watching it, isn't it? So you get a lot more out of it sometimes. It is, and I think um, I, you know. I think I think we've got a writer, a head
0: writer here who is you know he has certain strengths and he has certain weaknesses and and i think what we see is 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 those amplified over the course of over the course of this season. You know, we've we've been so lucky having Russell T. Davis and having Stephen Moffat. I, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we've we've been touched by genius. Chidnell, I think, has a very different approach to them. He is a he's a showrunner. He's a bony fidey showrunner. We saw that with Broadchurch. And and you know, he knows he knows the tricks of the trade there. I don't think he's as strong a writer, perhaps, as, as the other two are. Um But I think the last few episodes, we're seeing him bring other writers in who were who are perhaps you know trying to boost it. what he doesn't do so well, they, they're trying to boost and I think they, they're doing a reasonable job I, I thought the last episode um, the Shelley episode I thought was, was a, a reasonably, you know, really good tale and and it was you could tell that it was a storyteller who was used to driving the story forward and I, I thought that really, the, 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 he's made some very smart decisions this series and, and I think that it's, you can tell the difference, you really can, it's, it's a noticeable step up from, from season Eleven, and I think, I, I you know, without wishing to, without wishing to get my my crystal ball out, I, what I do hope is that I hope we get some form of this Tardis team carrying on next year because I think that the curve is going upwards. We're seeing a mm. we're seeing a distinct you know we're seeing a, a distinct curve. There are other areas which we'll probably touch upon as we talk about the episode that I think need to improve dramatically. But we are seeing an upward curve here, so you know. I hope we get some of, I hope we get some some payback for that.
1: Definitely. Uh, and Jason, we, we last spoke um, about Skyfall Part Two. What have your, been your highlights since then?
2: I am going to echo most of what Chris just said, so I'm going to keep my comments short because he's already dipped into my brain and told you what I was thinking, which was remarkable because I just met him for the first time when this call started. <laughs> Last year, Series 11, were two problems. Number one, the episodes themselves were not very engaging, and I was not in a rush to watch them. So I ended up not watching the season finale, which was um, the battle for Rumpelstiltskin, or whatever it was called, until about two weeks after the episode dropped. That's how uninterested I was in the series. The other problem were the reactionary, right-wing, fanboy trolls on Twitter who were complaining about the series being woke or about the series being political as a doctor who had never, ever been political before. And having to read those horrible comments on Twitter and Facebook and delivered on convention panels was just really, really disheartening. Now, the show has gotten no less woke and no less political this year But the episodes are so good that people seem to have stopped noticing. Now, maybe that's because the fanboy trolls have gone away, or maybe because they realized there was nothing to complain about in the first place. But it's a much more enjoyable experience following Doctor Who on social media this year, because everyone is talking about, with a couple of exceptions, the high quality of the episodes that we've had. And I'm also going to agree about Chris Chibnall really bring his showrunner talents to the fore. Uh, I'll make comparisons to the new season of Star Trek Picard, which in the U.S. is only available on a paid streaming app, CBS All Access. But Picard is being showrun by my favorite novelist, Michael Chabon. And the work that they're putting into Picard is also astounding, because every episode is part of a serial narrative, and you manage to have self-contained plots within the serial narrative, But you have some really remarkable cliffhangers and character arcs and callbacks to the past going on in Picard. And what's great about Doctor Who is Chibnall is managing to do the exact same thing and turn out almost the same high-quality level of work. So we've had the surprise return of Captain Jack. We've had the Ruth Doctor. We've had the return of the Cybermen in a terrific and novel and exciting way. And we've had a historical... And you managed to get both Byron and his daughter as pseudo-companions this year, which is just terrific. It's almost like a Doctor Who wish list. Mm -hmm. So there have been a couple of episodes that didn't work so well for me, and it's going to be hard to talk about Episode 9, obviously, because we don't know how it's going to end yet. But this has probably been Doctor Who's strongest TV season in almost 10 years. I think I could go out and safely say that.
1: Interesting. So uh, yeah, so so to move on to Ascension, the Cybermen. Um, I say it's the first of a 2 parter So so we don't know how it's going to pay off. Um, but what what were your thoughts on this one, Chris? You, you're right. I mean, effectively, we've watched
0: half an episode, mm-hmm. so we're, we're commenting right in the middle. And there, at least I hope, there's going to be misdirection. There's going to be, you know, things play out that we don't see play out. The only problem I have with um, with with this is I think they kind of got the story emphasis the wrong way around. I thought by far the more interesting story. By far the more interesting story was the little vignette about um, Brendan and 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 the way that and the way that he was developing and the way that that worked. I I really like I really liked, I really liked the, the Brendan arc. I thought that was that felt like a hop back to a Moffat type style of writing,
1: mm-hmm. you know, where we couldn't really see where it was going and it was
0: this <laughs> this alternate perspective. And I thought that was really, that, that, that really got me because as I was walking through, as I was, as I was being taken through it, I was thinking, right, this is definitely going to be a, a Time Lord story. And then we got him, and then we got the moment where he got shot. And, he, and, he, and I thought, oh, hello, we might have a Cyberman story here. And then we went to the end and I thought, right, that's clearly trying to, you know, to, 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 to preface the chameleon act. So we might have a, 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 a I, I kept flip-flopping. Mm -hmm. And I like that. I like not knowing where we were going on it. So I thought that was by far the most interesting part of it. I I thought the rest of the story was very much getting the doctor to where she needed to be rather than anything else. And, and, you know, you could almost see the point where where, – Chibnall thought, right, we need to split the companions up because that's what we have to do because otherwise we don't have a story. So we'll split the companions up and they go that way, they go that way. And it was all very sort of mechanical and very, you know, I don't want to say formulate because I, I don't like that word and I don't think it was formulate, but it, it felt it felt a very familiar rhythm. Mm. Um, and I thought that the, the Brendan stuff really got me. And I, I do hope they develop that a bit more. I'd love to see that
1: more. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, it's like that—the uh, silence in the library. That when the second part starts with with Donna, kind of living that that life, um, and you, you can't can't figure out how it fits to the rest of the story, and it, it seems like its own thing, um, yeah. and then sort of loop, loops back into it. Yeah, it did have a, a very uh, Stephen Moffat vibe, that didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I know what you mean as well about the the way, because I think there's a, some kind of line about oh, you know, you won't make it back to the Tardis. Because of all the Cybermen around, um, but I didn't really get why once the Doctor had hijacked the Cyber ship, she didn't just fly to where the TARDIS was, um, and, and then take the TARDIS to uh, to find the rest of the companions and things. It, uh, that seemed, yeah, it didn't like you say it was a little bit sort of just just uh, moving the pieces to where you wanted them um, rather than it flowing. In terms of, yeah. in, of making sense a little bit like that, in terms of what the characters would, would do or what you would do in that situation, I suppose.
0: There was a lot of explanation as to why obvious things couldn't happen. Mm. You know? So <laughs> let's get back to the TARDIS. We can't because it's too dangerous. Well, How many Cybermen are there? Well, we don't know. But don't worry about that. It's too dangerous. Okay, we need to split up and get back in the house. Well, Why? Mm. They're gonna. They're, they're, these people are big rockets. Why, why are we getting inside the house? Just get inside the house. Don't argue. Yeah, I, there was a lot of stuff that you were thinking. Yeah, but why? Why are you <laughs> telling me this? You know. And then it became obvious that they needed to move them. They needed to get them on board their respective ships. Get the doctor to where she needed to go. And getting Graham and Yaz into the middle of that big cyber minefield.
1: Yeah, the thing that that was quite chibnally for me that that reminded me of the Silurian episode that he did for Matt Smith's first series, where they spend quite a lot of time setting up all the cameras and and things like that to uh, to, to you know, but they don't they don't know quite what's happening, and the the hungry earth is swallowing people, and there's something out there, and they they sort of spend a few minutes um, like a kind of eighteen montage of. Of setting up cameras everywhere, and it doesn't really pay off and come to anything. And that was quite alike yeah. when the the doctor and her friends arrive and start setting up the force field and the, the device that um, puts particles of gold in the air, um, yeah. and then it doesn't. None of it does absolutely anything when the Cybermen turn up. <laughs>
2: yeah, I'm going to make a contrary argument there. I happen to love that opening montage about setting up the devices mm-hmm. because one thing the Cybermen have not really been in several years, is scary or effective. You have the Daleks openly making fun of them in Doomsday, way back in Series 2, which is perhaps not the best way of telling the audience how scary and powerful your monsters are. So this episode starts off with a Cyberman narrating, and with the disembodied head slowly flying towards the camera, which is a really gripping and interesting way to start off an episode. Especially because it came in a pre-credit sequence, which Chibnall has not been doing a lot of. And then you have Brendan, which we'll circle back around to in a minute. But then you have this last remnant of humanity under siege. And the Doctor shows up with her machines. And you figure it's all going to be okay. And the machines that she has are all callbacks to the classic series. So you have the gold dust machine, which brings us right back to Revenge of the Cybermen. And then you have the device that induces emotions in the Cybermen, which was literally the plot of the invasion of way back in Patrick Trouten Season 6. So you're like, okay, we've seen all these devices used before. These devices cut through the Cybermen like a hot knife through butter. The Doctor is going to save the day. And it is an intentional misdirection because then Chibnall brings out a new piece of cyber technology, which is the floating disembodied cyber drone heads which almost certainly is a callback to the taco thing from that Russell T. Davies series three episode, uh, Utopia. And these cyber drones show up and they massacre the Doctor's equipment. So you think the Doctor's going to save the day and she has all this classic series technology and it is all useless and it is all destroyed in a matter of seconds. And you're suddenly going, wait a minute, this episode is six minutes old and the Doctor's already been defeated. This is great. Where are they going to go from here? So for me, that montage was a lot more effective than the one in Hungry Earth, which didn't really go anywhere. This was direct service to the story, and it was a misdirection, and it shows you these Cybermen are going to crush you, which is exactly the story they needed to tell for a two-part season finale.
1: Mm-hmm. I did think, uh, just going back, you mentioned the, the opening narration um, with, with Ashad's voice over there, um, and the stuff about this, this true believer bringing back the fallen empire. Um, and it kind of, uh, you know, reminds me of, of you know, what obviously in, in the U.S. at the moment, you've got the sort of Make America Great Again movement. Um, uh, uh, but,
2: uh, let's not talk about, uh, uh, this is not something that all Americans endorse.
1: No, no, no. I don't sit around
2: my house <laughs> saying, Make America Great Again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, it was the same way over here, we've got, it, we've got a certain movement where, because um, the thing is, that Ashad has never been part of the Cybermen or a proper Cyberman, but he's kind of evangelical about the Cyber race. And 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 over here we've got people who who kind of weren't born during the Second World War or during the British Empire, but they perceive that as some kind of glory days that you know with, with Brexit or whatever that we you know we want to try and return to. And it just kind of made me think that you know that in the way that you know a really good Doctor Who monster does kind of echo threats and things that we've got in the world today. Um, that that he is that that type of person, isn't he? That's uh, um, you know, you, pushing it's for something. This
0: kind of is one of the problems I, I I have with using the Cybermen here. We know what the Cybermen are, right? They they are emotionless, they are feelingless. They have to be. The whole design concept of them is they have to turn the emotions off, or it would kill them. Mm-hmm. And yet, the main Cyber protagonist here is clearly driven by by you know zealotry and emotion and, and feeling and passion. So I'm wondering how somebody watching this without deep you know without deep knowledge of what cyber people are how they would get that, how that would sort of fit into their knowledge of the Sandman. Could this have been any alien? Could this have been any sort of inverted commas bad person? You know, that, that, that's the only sort of thought I had about this, that what we've got is we've got somebody, we've got, we've got the, you know, that very powerful opening and I, one thing I do think, I think they got the opening feel right. You know, I've got quibbles about the way that they managed the plot and I've got quibbles about the way that it was done. But it felt good, didn't it? You were watching it, and it was—it looked spectacular. Mm. You know, this wasn't wobbly sets and poor production values. This—this this had an epic scale. I—I like the way that they positioned that. But my thoughts are: the Cybermen are famous for being emotionless, and yet the main protagonists we have, the main—the main foe in this, is nothing but a big ball of vengeful emotion. You know, I, I, I'm not quite sure how that sits either.
2: I don't have a tremendous problem with the Cybermen being emotional because it's clearly being introduced as a new wrinkle and a new upgrade on the Cybermen. So a really effective moment comes towards the end of the episode, towards the end of part one, where Ashad and his cohorts go to the dormant Cybermen, who have the 1970s Cybermasks, Revenge of the Cybermen, by the way, and he starts drilling into them and reprogramming them and making the Cybermen scream. And one of the characters says, uh, this guy's actually making the Cybermen scream. So this is the next generation of Cybermen. This is Cybermen who can take emotions and use it as a driving force. It's not too dissimilar to the way that Stephen Moffat spent most of his time as showrunner trying to reinvent the Daleks. And then you have human Daleks, and then you have the brightly multicolored Daleks from the Mark Gatiss episode, and then you have humans who can grow Dalek foreheads. This is Chibnall not just telling an old, reheated, warmed-over, 50-year Cybermen story. This is a new version of the Cybermen who are more powerful and more capable than we've seen in a long time. So I am willing to go along for the ride and see where this winds up in Part 2. Obviously, the Cybermen have to be defeated at some point. But if they're going to be defeated, let's set them up as the most scary Cybermen we've ever seen. And let's give him some new facets, some new wrinkle that we haven't seen before. So I'm willing to give him a little more rope and see how it plays out uh, with Sunday night's broadcast.
1: I suppose in a way, Ashad works a little bit in the way that Davros does, doesn't he? It's it's a more interesting uh, enemy for the Doctor to to talk to. Um, you've got somebody who's got some of the characteristics of a, a you know side man in this case, in the way that Davros has some of the characteristics of a Dalek. But it can be that bit more articulate and uh, and, uh, and understand things uh, in the way that the the general Dalek and Cybermen kind of troops don't. Uh, So I suppose it's a good thing to use uh, maybe once or twice, but in in the way that Davros became a bit overused, probably in the classic series after his first appearance, um, I guess you, you wouldn't want him... Uh, Ashad always around, leading leading the Cybermen like that. I, I, what I will what I will say is I will see to Jason on this because it's it's
0: we are as I say we're halfway through, so mm-hmm. the payoff we'll see what the payoff's like in the next episode. We'll see we'll see how that works out. I'm flagging it as a as a as a point of interest perhaps, and say let's let's see where he goes with this. Let's see what happens. Um, it can it can go on in two ways. It can be a new facet, or it can be a bit of a dead end. So I'll 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 I'll, I'll hold my counsel on that one.
1: Absolutely. Uh, and it was I really like the design of the cyber ships. The uh, the way that they're piloted. Because um, if you did have a sort of a cyber race like that, the technology would be very. Um, Kind of uh, ergonomic, you know, it would it would be something that uh, you know Cyberman would kind of plug into and uh, and and steer with their whole body like that. I thought that was a really nice piece of design. The way uh, when the Doctor flies it, she's she's it's clearly quite a a struggle for her because uh, you know she doesn't have the strength of a Cyberman to um, to to manipulate the controls. So all that was quite cool. And then the uh, the troop carrier ship just looked fantastic. It was a huge scale. Um, and that obviously really made you think about um, Earthshock as well, uh, a, a ship absolutely full of cybermen.
2: I have recently been watching the classic series In Order, which I may have mentioned in my last couple of appearances here on Trap One. But I watched the episode and I read the novelization for Earthshock just a few months ago, probably in October, which is about four months before we record this. So it's still fresh in my mind. And the troop carrier ship, and especially the ending where Ashad cries out for his army to awake, uh, the new Mm -hmm. race of Cybermen. And all the doors start flying open, one at a time, causing a domino effect towards the camera. Then you have thousands and thousands of Cybermen waking up out of hibernation. That is essentially a direct rewrite of the Part 3 cliffhanger to Earthshock where all the Cybermen break out of their silos on uh, Barrel Reed's Freighter. So, Earthshock is a bit of a polarizing story in classic series fandom. I mean, it's beloved because it kills off Adric, and it's beloved because it had the surprise return of the Cybermen for the first time in many, many years. But the episode itself is a bit choppy and disjointed, typical Eric Sayward script, and there are single-scene subplots that don't go anywhere, Earthshock is a story that could have been so much better. What Chibnall is doing here, and I'm almost 99.8% positive this is intentional, he's doing a rewrite of Earthshock, and he's having Earthshock produced on a much more higher motion picture budget. So the cliffhanger here, as far as the truth carrier is concerned, is Earthshock, only done on a better budget, and with better special effects, and with better writing. So for me, the comparisons to Earthshock were just amazing. It was almost a direct line-to-line rewrite down to the line by Army Awakes. And this is just really, really well-made television. Now, Earthshock was very good TV for its day, but standards have changed. So bringing it forward you know, almost 40 years later and watching it realized so well was a very positive experience for me, at least. I don't know if you guys
0: saw the same comparisons to Earthshock that I did. You no. Know, I, I, was, I was actually, um, how old was I when Earthshop was on? I was 13, I was watching it as a boy when Earthshop came on. Chibnall's two years older than me, so he would have had roughly the same experience watching it that I did. And I have to tell you, the ending, with, uh, with the, the badge and the black screen and the no music, was one of those TV moments that I will never ever forget in my life. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. <clears throat> never mind the fact that Adric's death didn't actually contribute anything to the story, right? We'll, we'll park that for the time being. It was, it was great and for the time again, the, the, the Cybermen suits that we saw were, were flight suits that had been, you know, RAF flight suits that had been made up, and they looked better. So they, they, they were better than the Cybermen that we'd seen in the 1970s. So, yes, it doesn't hold up now, but it's the incremental advance that we we saw, we've seen from, from Earthshock to now. We saw from Earthshock to Revenge of the Cybermen. And so I suspect that Chibnall has, almost certainly, Trying to recapture, and I think that's what a lot of fans my age are trying to do. We're trying to recapture that earth shock moment, that feeling where we were completely unspoiled, where there was no sense of. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm always sort of really interested by the notion of fandom because I don't really recognize it as fandom. I, I, it, it's always been just me on my own because I was a, I was a lad growing up in the northeast of England. We didn't really have many science fiction friends. So for me, it's always been a very solitary experience being a Doctor Who fan. Um, you know, but obviously Twitter and, and and social media and the internet has opened that up like a like like Charlie's like like Willie Want Chocolate Factory. But at the time when Earthshock was on, it wasn't. It was very individually, it was me on my own, and I've never seen anything like it. And I wonder if rather than doing a rewrite of Earthshock, he's trying to capture That earth shock moment, he's trying to, we're going to see something at the end of the next episode where he tries and captures that death of Adric moment.
1: Yeah,
2: interesting. Well, that's really interesting. I'm going to say though, and this is a tough question to ask because TV when you're 13 is much more important and meaningful than TV when you're in your 40s, as I presume most of us are now. Mm -hmm. Did you enjoy, in isolation, watching the end of Ascension of the Cybermen, having no spoilers as to what was to come? Did it have as much meaning for you in your 40s as watching Earthshock Part 3 and Part 4 did when you were 13 years old? Because I was about the same age when I saw Earthshock here in PBS reruns in the States, probably 1984 or 1985. So did it have the
0: same power and the same impact for you? I think that that question hits upon why you get so many of the of the of the people who are fans of Doctor Who feeling slightly disconnected. Because you, as you say, you're never gonna capture the Earthshock moment, ever. It was it was a time and a place and it was it was something I am inherently critical now. I'm inher- you know, I've, I've I've moved I'm not the, 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 the I, I watched I watched the Earthshock, I watched Castor of Valver, I watched them all, with this sort of slack jawed, unquestioning wonder that I just don't have now. And I think that's I think that's the difficulty. What I would hope is that there is a 13-year-old somewhere, a 13-year-old girl or a 13-year-old boy watching and thinking, wow, I didn't think things could be, I didn't think I could connect with something like I've connected with this. You know, Earthshot got in my head for weeks afterwards, weeks afterwards, and, and I hope this gets into somebody's head of the same age so I think the answer is inevitably no it isn't and no it can't but I hope it does for someone if that makes sense
1: yeah I I agree with that really really
0: good response thank you for that
1: yeah I think I think um, you're absolutely right Chris yeah it's um, it's and, and as the showrunner should as well you've always got to have like an eye on the next generation haven't you and and Uh, you know how that's gonna gonna impact on them Um, and I'm thinking um, I mean we don't know how it's all gonna play out but the way in this series you've got um, like the Ruth Doctor um, that idea of of somebody not knowing that they've got um, a power or that they are somebody else that really taps into something that's that that's very appeals uh very appealing, I think, when you're a kid and it's you know, it's like Harry Potter finding out he's a wizard and the 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 X Men uh, you know, kind of burgeoning powers as they get a little bit older. Um and, and probably what's gonna happen maybe with Brendan is that sort of thing is, is very powerful. I think where, you know, you you're a normal person, but then some some great power or destiny it turns out that you've got and it's it's a mainstay of loads of, of children's literature and movies, isn't it? Um, I've I, I got like... a question
0: about this, because there's there's something I've noticed that's gone through this series, and Jason, I wonder if you picked up, it might just be me, but every so often, and, and, and it's happened more than once, and it's happened enough times for it to be more than a coincidence, the th- almost the theme has been, well, you don't know me. You know, I've seen the doctor fire it back to, to the companions, I've seen Yaz fire it, I've seen, you know, various protagonists throughout the stories, well, you don't know me. And because I, I, I always thought when I first heard the doctor say, I oh, thought it was a bit rude. Yeah. You know. And it goes through, but it it it's been a theme that I've picked up three or four times from the various protagonists of You Don't Know Me. Do you think that's the do you think that's the arc of the of the series? You don't know me, and it's addressed to you know, it's addressed to the doctor to herself, it's 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 Graham, it's to the companions. Yeah, I, I, I just wondered whether I was making too much of something that particularly struck me as a painful thing to say, or whether there is that notion of you don't know me that runs throughout the series that we're going to see paid off at the end. I have definite thoughts about that, and I have
2: fallen criminally behind on updating my blog with posts and reviews of the Series 12 episodes. I have stalled out after Episode 4, the Tesla episode, and the other posts are written but need to be edited and posted. But if you go back to what I posted at the end of Skyfall Part 2, which echoes similar comments that I made on the Trap One recording for that episode, this is the first time that we've seen the 13th Doctor wrong footage. She's been misdirected. She doesn't know what's going on. So we have a doctor now whose home planet has been destroyed, again, while she wasn't paying attention, and her character has been hurt and almost suffering with PTSD for this entire season. And there's any number of reaction shots where the fam says something that reminds her of Gallifrey, and you see her looking hurt and confused. I would say it's an intentional arc that Chibnall has put in to give Jodie Whittaker something to do as an actress. Because in series 11, and I thought Whitaker was very good with the lines she was given, she didn't have any defining traits. She was just there. And she was going through the scripts. But now you have a doctor who has a mission and a purpose. Find out what happened to Gallifrey, find out what is the timeless child. But you also have a doctor who is emotionally wounded by what's happening during the season. And it's the first time we've seen her get snappy with the fam. And... It's all going to come to a head, obviously, thanks to the big cliffhanger at the end of Ascension of the Cybermen. We know that she is going to go through some pretty serious trauma, and she's going to learn some very painful and hurtful things in the series finale. So you say the arc is, you don't know me. I'm going to go even more better and say, this is the Doctor's season-long arc. I don't understand what's happening to me, and I'm confused in a way that I've never been before. And this is all a way of giving Jodie Wicker something to do and some art to probe as an actress throughout the season. To probe as an actress throughout the season. It gives her something to do and it gives her a mission. And I think it's going to give an emotional resonance to the series finale that was completely non-existent with the battle for Rumpelstiltskin last year. Or two seasons, two, two years ago, one season ago. So I'm excited for what he's done for Jodie Whittaker with these scripts and with this presumed story arc. And I guess we'll find out where it pays off uh, on Sunday night.
1: Mhm. Yeah, I think it, yeah it ties in like you say about we. Well, obviously, Ruth Doctor's the, the biggest example, but yeah, people not quite being uh, who you think they are. So the uh, like the scientist in Praxius, uh, you know, wasn't who the Doctor thought they were. There's, there's, like you said, there's quite a few examples of that. And then the uh, Can You Hear Me, you know, it's it's about people not really understanding what other people are going through and uh, and not really knowing them. You know, nobody, um, it seems like on the TARDIS, knows about what happened to Yaz, Yaz's backstory and how she came to be a, a policewoman. Uh, Graham doesn't know, uh, nobody knows, you know, but Graham, what his worries are and uh uh, and then with Ryan and his his friend as well, like his best friend, but hasn't you know hasn't been around to to know what he's going through as well. So.
0: I think that, I mean I think that's kind of yeah, it's almost the opposite of, of the Sylvester McCoy series, isn't it? You know, we, whereas he was the great schemer, he was the one putting plans four and five, you, you know, moves ahead. Mm. We've got a doctor constantly responding and reacting and 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 having having a, a consistent bad day, if you like. Um, and I think that's, I think it's, it's it's an interesting choice. And Jason, I have to say, I think I think you're exa- you're exactly right because season the last season we, we had, the Doctor was just kind of there. You know, she couldn't interfere in Rose's story because that would have absolutely destroyed Rose's agency and been a horrific story to tell. So she couldn't do that. Same, you know, it's just, it, and it was the same kind of throughout. The Doctor was just sort of there. Whereas this season we've at least had her re- having to respond and having to react, um, and I, I, I'm, one of the things I would love to see is I would love to see Yaz develop. I'm I'm, I'm really like Yaz, but I don't think she's had a fair crack at the whip. I I, I, I think this this there's just too many people there there's just too many people for her to get a, a proper feel of the story and I think it's such a shame because I see her there's, there's, a gross, there's such a gross story to tell there and I would love to see that develop I really really would I mean I adore Graham I think Graham's fantastic I would you know I, if, if we don't have a spin off the Graham adventures even if it's just him going down the shops and discovering new flavours of food I would like that I would love that you know he, he goes down the shops and he finds something different Then you go know, oh that's, that's interesting didn't think i'd have that oh, my God, i might make that into a bit of a dinner you know i'd love to see that i'd watch that all day i love grim ryan you know again i don't think we've been allowed to connect with i haven't seen any growth in ryan's character at all and i hope i hope i'm wrong and i hope i'm missing it but i haven't actually seen any development his relationship with grim it, it could it, even we saw in the last episode it could be exactly the same as, as was in the, the second or third episode that moment they shared where he called him grandad that's almost disappeared you know, we, we haven't seen any growth Yaz is the one, Yaz has got that potential, which indicates to me that I wonder if something's going to happen to someone, is it going to happen to Yaz
1: mm. I did wonder if Graham's being set up for the traditional companion exit of, of uh, being paired up with somebody, because there was the the moment he shared with the uh, the character when they're exploring the cybership together um, and uh, right. She, right. she says, oh, you're very strange or something like that and he says, oh, I'm the most normal bloke you'll ever meet and he goes, no, no, I like strange or something and uh, that seemed uh, like maybe that's going to go somewhere if, if he is leaving.
0: Now I saw on Twitter a couple of people mentioned that exact scene where she said where, where she said, Oh, you're you you're you're stranger, you and he stumbled his line, didn't he?
1: Yeah he stumbled
0: his line and he said, I'm the I'm the most normal man you could ever see. Right? And yeah. and I've heard a couple of a couple of suggestions on Twitter saying that did he? Was he? Was he stopping himself deliberately, saying, "I'm the Doctor"? There now, that would be a left turn. Yeah. <laughs> that would be an absolute phenomenal left turn if I pulled that one off. But I don't know whether it, it just strikes me as odd where they're spending all this money doing all these beautiful spaceships and this amazing scene, but they don't go and re, go go rework a line that that an actor stumbled on.
1: Yeah, so, it made it feel more it, deliberate, didn't it?
0: Yeah, is there something there or did they leave it in just to show that Graham's a human being? Yeah. And actually, you do see human beings stumble over the lines occasionally yeah. and it looked natural and it looked good. you yeah. know. So maybe, maybe it, is, it, 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 is, it is those of us who have devious minds looking and seeing patterns
1: that don't exist. But there has been an ongoing thread in this series of people assuming that he's the Doctor. So Stephen Fry's character in Spyfall did and then Jack did as well. Mm. In the mm. fugitives of Jadun so yeah, it would it would be an enormous left turn, um, but maybe it's a tribute to the Hartnell era um, in slightly fluffing his line as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, there could be any of that. There could be any
1: of that. And uh, as I say, I always took the the
0: mistake of the the mistake of the doctor identity to be a sort of a, a slap in the face to to. to <clears throat> You know, to, to those people who sort of didn't didn't want a female Doctor and didn't didn't you know didn't treat her with the respect that she should have been treated with. I, yeah. I always liked those lines just to say, no, sorry, the world's moved on and you're coming with us.
2: Mm. And to have characters whose only frame of reference is a Doctor who's female is a nice antidote to all these Twitter people saying, the Doctor has to be a male at all times because.
0: Mm.
2: Now, I would be very disappointed if it turned out that Graham was... A doctor hiding out under the chameleon arch because that would really take away from having judy whitaker that would be the ultimate act of mansplaining wouldn't it you have judy whitaker as the doctor and then whoops you're not the doctor at all this man next to you has been the doctor all
0: the time so i really hope not, that chibnall is not going in that direction have they not already done that with with the ruth doctor though have they already not got a second doctor We know there's a second doctor in play have they not already pulled the, pulled the stunt of, look, There's we've got an additional Doctor here. I, Because mm. I had those misgivings as well, I thought, actually, having a second Doctor, however fantastic, Ruth was, and I've got to tell you, again, if we're doing spin-offs, I want to see the Ruth Doctor series, because she looked awesome, mm. right? Um, but, uh, do you know, I, I did think that halfway through the season, a season where Jodie was just beginning to find her feet, To pull the rug out like that, I was a bit concerned about. So yeah, I I agree with you on that. I think I hope it's not that in a way because I don't want to see Jordy undermined because she's developing her voice. It's it's not the immediate impact that some Doctors have, but she is developing it.
2: And having the Doctor be a woman of colour, as is Joe Martin, is a very important and necessary step for the series. So having the Doctor learn that this woman of colour is the Doctor is a really important moment for fandom. But having Jodie Whittaker learn that the Doctor is really another white male is sending an opposite and perhaps not so progressive or interesting message. So obviously we're speaking in the dark, and we'll find Mm -hmm. out more on Sunday evening. But having the Doctor be a woman of color is great storytelling. Having it turn out that the Doctor is just another white male is not perhaps so great storytelling.
1: Yeah, I did, I can't remember who said this on Twitter, but um, the, another theory was that he stopped himself from saying "I'm the dog's bollocks" because uh, <laughs> right, I'm behind that. I'm absolutely behind that. Well, because he,
0: <laughs> if, he's, if he's even if he stopped himself saying "I'm the dog's I'd be I, yeah, I'd be happy with that. That'd be great. The, um, because I, I, look, I've got to tell you, one of the things I don't kind of like is the indulgence in. You know mythology and stuff like that. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I like just tell me a story. I don't need to know about the lonely god. I don't need to know about the yeah. I, just tell me a story that keeps my attention. You know, it's it, it, Doctor Who works at its very, very best where you, you you take a breath at the start and you take a breath at the end and you think, my god, have I breathed all the way through this? Because this has just been spectacular. You know, I'm not really interested in the mythos. Because the mythos is always a plot point anyway, isn't it? You know, this is the the, the talk of canon. Is he? It's rubbish, really. Because they use canon when they need to shuffle things up and shuffle the deck. I don't mm. care about that type of stuff. I, I, so I think I, I kind of I'm, I'm always troubled when it's used as a as a as a, as a kind of a, a a central trunk, if you like, of the of, of the storytelling. Because yeah, okay, you know, we know it now, but. I'm, I'm not really that interested. I'm going to both agree
2: and disagree with Chris, and I'll tell you why. If you just have continuity, which is the 1980s term for mythology, if you have the continuity as the only reason that you're telling a story, as you have with so much of the Eric Sayward slash JNT era, then it doesn't necessarily work. I will defend Warriors of the Deep until the day that I die, which hopefully is not for at least another 10 minutes, but Mm -hmm. their story had no emotional resonance from the return of the Silurians and the Sea Devils because they were written so one-dimensionally. So if you just have continuity for the sake of continuity, it's not going to work. It needs to be in service to a good story, and it needs to change things for the characters going forward. So having... The Ruth Doctor is hopefully a big teaser for next series, which it seems like we're not going to get for another year and a half, and series 11 is what happens when you have Doctor Who with no mythology, no continuity, no ongoing story at all. Until the New Year's Day special, there were no returning characters, there were no kisses to the past. It was just new story, after new story, after new story, and it wasn't very engaging. Doctor Who has this tremendous toy chest to play with going all the way back to 1963. And in the episode, Can You Hear Me? the most exciting word of the script for me was toy maker. Because I like the continuity. I like the mythology. I like the fact that Doctor Who can go on and tell stories with plot points that are taken out of the 60s and 70s. Like I mentioned earlier with the uh, Cybermen being attacked by the the gun that fires gold dust, or the one that induces emotions. We've seen all that before. So, uh, yes, use the mythology, but use it intelligently. And I'm going to hope that Ascension of the Cybermen is using the mythology intelligently, and it's going to tell a really good story that changes things going forward. I hope it doesn't just turn out to be another warriors of the Deep. Oh, look, it's the Silurians. Oh, look, there's no emotional resonance at all. I think we're seeing the emotional resonance this year. So... I'm judging an incomplete series, but I think Chibnall is using the past very, very well, and hopefully the Sunday night broadcast of The Timeless Children is going to bear me out.
1: Yeah, I think it's a fine line, isn't it, that the the showrunner has to walk there? Um, Because I I like the more of the the Doctor appearing as as just a mysterious wandering time and space that, you know, just arrives in a situation and helps out but then when they need to do a, a series finale or an anniversary special um, the, I guess the way that they make it epic is to bring the Doctor's own people in uh, or to you know to, to bring in a bit of the continuity and the, the, the huge amount of lore that uh, that it's accumulated um, yeah it's It's such a stark contrast between series 11 and 12 isn't it and um it, it makes you wonder what what the payoff is, because obviously there's all kinds of theories um, of what the uh, you know the, the the backstory or what the conclusion of this is going to be with the timeless child. Is it going to be a pre Hartnell doctor? Uh, I know some people are thinking, well, is it a sort of a season six B or season six C? Story where uh, oh, you know. I hope not. Well, it's I too.
0: It's, that would take so much explaining, wouldn't it? Can you imagine? You're 11 years old, and what's the what's been the high point of the series? Well, back in 1969. Yeah.
1: it's too fiddly, oh, God, isn't God. it? It's um. I don't think we're going to get anything like that, or uh, you know, the Valyard returning or something. It's it's too fiddly and would require too much explanation for for something that that a large amount of the audience. I'm going to know anything about. So. Well, let
2: me give you a let me give you a counterexample then, because Twice Upon a Time begins with literal clips from the Tenth Planet, and then it seamlessly morphs into the modern day, and Hartnell becomes David Bradley, and it's a one-minute setup, and it worked perfectly. You could theoretically do the same thing, and don't do it in the series finale. Do it in the New Year's Day special, which opens up 2021 or whatever the next special is going to be. Take the last 60 seconds of the War Games and put the Chiron on screen 706 episodes ago <laughs> and have Bernard Horstful say the time has come for you to change your appearance and have Trouton's face go up on the screen and have his face start spinning around and then morph that using CGI into Joe Martin and have Trouton become the Ruth Doctor changing his appearance. That could work really, really well if she is the series 6 b doctor, and if that's how they're going to do it. It can be done, and it can work, without bringing the series to a halt. Mm -hmm. But it has to be done right.
1: And I'd rather it
2: not be a pre-Hartnell doctor, because we saw Hartnell's origin story in the name of the doctor. We saw him leaving Galbraith with Susan. So to go back and say that there was a doctor before him flying around in the police box... It doesn't make a lot of sense in the context of the continuity of the new series. It makes more sense if she's a series 6B Doctor. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And Chris is right, they have to explain it very carefully, but there is a way to explain it in 60 seconds without confusing the vast majority of the viewing audience.
1: Yeah, it would need to be quite deftly done, wouldn't it, I think, to... uh, to As I say, I, I I think Doctor Who is always at its best
0: when it's pushing forward. When you when you're getting and I call it again, it's a real irony. It's a real irony that, that we're talking about this episode, and there's so many calls backs to, to Earthshot because I, I actually define my sort of experience watching television as my Earthshot moments. You know, what, what moments drop me in my stride and make me make me look at the screen and, and and you know make make my television viewing experience different to what it was before. I haven't had that many, and and. That's what we need to capture. That's that's what the show really, really needs. I don't think Series Eleven was a failure of mythology. I think Series Eleven was a failure of storytelling. Mm. There was there was no stories. The Doctor didn't really ever do a lot. The Doctor's presence. I, again, I'm, I'm I'm guilty of the oldest fan crime, and you know I am everything that that that, that deserves to be pulled down. I'm I'm a middle aged white, you know. Male fan, and I, and I accept this, and I accept that that's where I'm coming from. But it, it, what I like to see, I like the doctor to come in and, and be innovative and be a problem solver, and you know, be a, be an engineer and a scientist because that really works. Not only not only from a storytelling point of view, but from a role model point of view. Imagine the power of of, of seeing that, of seeing of seeing that Jodie Whittaker's doctor go back, hark back to that. There's there's a line in State of Decay. Where, where Salma says, are you a scientist like me, Doctor? I'd love someone to say that to Jodie Whitaker and for that to be their motif. Yes, I am a scientist, I'm an engineer, I'm a problem solver. They've done that to an extent. But it's not a central tenet in any of the stories of season 11. That's where season 11 went off the rails because there was no problems to be solved. And I think what we're finding in season twelve is we've got problems, and that's good, and that helps the drama and it helps drive it forward. So I think we need we need to see how these problems are solved. And I, I, I must confess, Jason, I've never thought of that season six being intro, and I think that might you know that might work. That might work. You 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 sort of turn me a little bit on that because I've never thought of that. Well, thank you. Hopefully, hopefully I'm right, and hopefully we get an explanation that is that interesting
2: and uh,
1: innovative yeah i think um i mean it would, one of the uh, the eras that's always held up as a, as a kind of golden age of doctor who is is the hinchcliffe here not it and there's very few returning monsters um and uh, things like that in in his era you know he's um he, he's, he's pushing forward with a lot of uh, a lot of new aliens a lot of new stories and you know, think like sort of season 14 i don't think there's any uh, I'm going to have probably forgotten something huge there, but I think, you know, it's like Talons of Wen Chiang and, and the, uh, the Hand of Fear, isn't it? and uh, the, all those kind of but stories. But at, that...
2: at the same time, sorry to, sorry to tread over you, but yeah. in series 13 you have The Brain of Morbius, which is essentially a Time Lord story, mm. and the one that created the idea of the pre Hardnell Doctor. That's out of Hinchcliffe. And then, of course, yeah. Hinchcliffe is most famous for Deadly Assassin, which rewrites Time Lord mythology. So he is avoiding the past where he needs to, but he's also using the past in ways to drive the narrative forward and change the arc. So the pre hartnell Doctors allegedly, in Brain of Morbius, Mm -hmm. and the rewriting of the Time Lords in Deadly Assassin, might not be too dissimilar to what Chibnall is trying to do here with the Ruth Doctor and the Timeless Child,
0: and the very last 60 seconds to Ascension of the Cybermen. Mm -hmm thought it was a sh- almost a shame that the master didn't have a little bit more of a, of a shadowing because he, he sort of hung over the ascension of the Cybermen, like a you know like a bit of a, a a bit of a ghostly figure we knew he was coming back we knew that he had to be in there and it just popped up at the end um, and he didn't really do anything other than saying it's going to change forever. Well, he already said that at the, the, the back end of Skyfall, so we knew things were going to change forever, and that was just like a. He turned up to remind everyone. Um, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more foreshadowing of him. Uh, you know, uh, that I, I I don't know. I don't even know how they could have done it, um, but I, it just it just felt like oh, there's there's another part of the recipe that we forgot, so we'll put that in at the end. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I would have liked to have seen a little bit a little bit more than that. Um, because I thought I, you know, they, they could have had him as they could have had him as they could have had him as developing that. But I, I don't know. I just I just got the feeling it was a bit of a right. Jordy's here now. We need to we need to crack on with the Gallifrey stuff. Yeah. So let's have the Master in the pot. And well, I, would have let, I, I thought it was a little clumsy. I want to have two points to that.
2: Number one, the Master can't be Ko Sharmas because if you have a chance to get Ian McElhenney from Game of Thrones and everything yep. else in your series, <laughs> absolutely. 100%. You jump
0: at it.
2: Yeah, 100%. And, he, and he's playing Charlton Heston as Moses from the Ten Commandments. So you need to have that, and Sacha Dewan can't do that. My second point is we had the Return of the Master teased on Twitter and in the cast list for Episode 10. So let's talk about Varrock Stevis. So they released this cast list for The Timeless Children, and there's a character called Fake Out, F-A-K-O-U-T <laughs> played by an actor named Barack Stemmis? Oh,
0: cool.
2: and immediately I don't know if it's Sasha Dewan I want to believe that it's him or maybe it's somebody in the production office immediately Barack Stemmis joins Twitter and starts spreading everybody in the Doctor Who community yeah. and starts teasing his appearance in an and makes it very very obvious as to who he is And it turns out that Barack Stemmis is the same person as James Stoker from the King's Demons, which Mm -hmm. is an anagram for Master's Joke. Yeah. Or it's an anagram for uh, Neil Toyne from Castor Valva, who was Tony Ainley. Or the other acronym, Leon Naité from Time Flight, who was also Tony Ainley. So Barack Stemmes' Master is back. So we had all the information that we needed. It just came on social media rather than during the episode itself. Yeah.
0: Okay. I mean, I I, yeah, I get that, but again, I I, I never really like those knowing little nods that they did in 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 uh, in, in the in the, certainly in the Davison eras. I mean, it was you know let the story do the heavy lifting. Let the story do it. Clever little tricks and stuff like that. I mean, I, I get and I can understand that they are a nice bit of fluff. So the story should be surely
1: should be pulling that through
0: more.
1: Yeah. I would have liked to have seen Sasha Duan shave that beard down to a goatee by now as well. <laughs>
2: uh, well, Barack Stemmas <laughs> on Twitter is much more entertaining for me than Orphan55
0: or Praxis. So I guess to each their own. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, that's a very fair point as well. That is a very fair point.
1: With the Brendan storyline, um, do you think they ever caught the thief that shot him? It's, Ooh, it that's a good me, question. It left me wondering.
0: Yeah, is there something there that we need to unpack? Is there something that will be unpacked in the in, in, in the Timeless Children, perhaps? I, 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 as I say, I, I hope so, because I think that was a really, really interesting sort of... That was For me, that was Tribunal's best storytelling. That's mm. the best storytelling I've seen him do. Because it was interesting, it was engaging, and I cared about what happened to the protagonist. I didn't feel like they were just telling me stuff, as no. I felt so much throughout this. The, the the Chibnall ring. There's just been these information dumps because you know there hasn't been any other way of getting the plot to me. Whereas this was it was subtle. It was I mean you know it was subtle in the sense that. Um, we had traditional Irish music and I use that in inverted commas yeah. to sort of point us in the direction. One thing I did want to say, um, the music I think this season for me, the music has been a real, real joy mm. it's been, you know, I loved Murray Gold, I really did um, but I think I think Sagan has added such a, a, a depth to it um, and I think I think I think he has. I think Saganakiola has a real future ahead of him because I have loved what he's done.
1: Yeah, yeah, I loved yeah, it well, with series think, eleven, but I think I think series twelve—it's it, gone up a notch again, hasn't it?
0: I'm I'm yeah. a, I, again. I'm a prisoner of my age. I accept this, please. You know, anybody listening, listen—you um, are listening to a to to an old white man talk about this. But I am I'm. I think the best music I've ever heard in Doctor Who is the 1980-81 electronica of Paddy Kingsland, Peter Howell. You know the the the, the electronic work, uh, the the Radio workshop when they were just let loose and and told to go away and do stuff, and they produced the disco theme. And that that is my that is my music, and I love the Segun. He, he puts little nods and little homages to that in there. There's little bits of electronica in here and there. I just, I I, I think that the, the music for the for the last couple of series, but especially this series,
2: you know, I think it's been really, really good. The next beardiest thing that I've ever done as a Doctor Who fan is <clears throat> back in the 90s, I sat in front of the TV with an audio tape and I off-air recorded the isolated score from Legopolis and Castro Valva, which is Patty yeah. Kingsland. That's and I play yeah. those teams over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not quite at the point where I am ready to do that with Segan's score, but I do agree. This is the best music that we've had on the show in quite some
0: time. It's very fresh and it's very new and it's very bold. Yeah, it is. I think. I mean, I don't get me wrong. Like I say, I loved when Murray Gold came in. He had uh, such a beautiful, distinct voice. I still think my favorite bit of Doctor Who music. Is um, the um, oh god the, the, the cliffhanger where where Rose and, and the Doctor were saying goodbye uh, because the, she was in the alternate universe, mm-hmm. um, the army of ghosts, Doomsday, that last ending, that, that's, that's that's fantastic. Murray Golden is amazing, but it needed a change. You know nothing lasts forever, and it, it needed a change. And I think in Segu Naki they have found an absolute diamond. Yeah. I think then I it's it. the same
2: with Dudley Simpson. The music is great, but after ten years of it, you've heard every motif, you've heard mm-hmm. every theme. You need a change of pace.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I think the 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 change we had from Dudley to the Radiophonic Workshop, <laughs> we've had a similar change from Murray to you know to to to, to Segu, and I think it's just it's really you know the the the, mu- the notes and the motifs and the the imagery that he conjured up. I Think has been really interesting this series, and I thought in Ascension, I thought he, he played it pitch perfectly. It wasn't there was a temptation to go big, and he didn't go big, he played it and he played it just about right. I really like the music,
1: definitely. Yeah, and like you say, the uh, the sort of the, uh, the Irish music for the Brendan storyline, but then when you had the, the, the big reveal, really, which was. That when Brendan retires, um, the the other two guys haven't aged at all, yeah. Um, which I, you didn't see it coming it was a fantastic, fantastic reveal. Um, yeah. The, the the music there really um, nicely underscored the um, the weirdness of it. Um, yeah, it
0: did. It played against it very, very well. And as I say, I think the Brendan. The Brendan element was was you know, I think possibly the best bit of storytelling that that, yeah. that channel's done, which is a bit of a shame.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: but nonetheless, yeah. you know, we take it where we can get it, because I think that I, I cared about those characters. I thought they were interesting and I thought they had something they, they had something to give and they added to the story. So yeah. fingers crossed we, we, we may not get they may not be in the in in, in the final series final story, but I yeah. hope we get a little payoff there. That would be nice.
1: You the reason why
0: I like
2: the Brendan storyline so much is watching the classic series, there are whole characters who go through the classic series never getting to meet the Doctor. Uh, the best example being Kriya Timon in Caves of Androzani. She has this whole wonderful story arc, and she never meets the Doctor at all. And same with Morgus, has this great story arc, and he never has a scene in the same room as the Doctor. Mm-hmm. They talk once on video, but that's it. So having this whole... Irish 1930s storyline play out with Brendan and his family and his co-workers without the Doctor ever knowing about it, is something that the modern series has not been doing. So it would be somewhat spoiled for me if the Doctor then lands in Ireland in 1935 and has tea with the family. Yeah. Let's leave it yeah. separate. Let's let that story yeah. develop in isolation and only yeah. give the Doctor the consequences at the very, very end. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be happy with that.
1: The other thing, so uh, we've got to mention on the music uh, that we've got to thank Segan for is the middle eight, uh, the theme tune was back in the closing credits, which to be honest, like for years I've heard Doctor Who fans talk about the middle eight and I've never had a clue what it actually was. Um, So (laughs) when he tweeted and said, look, the middle eight's back and I could listen to it, I thought, oh, now I know what people are talking about because I don't really know musical terms, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't play any instruments or anything like that, so I've never really known what the middle eight is, but now I know, thanks to that. And it does sound right putting it back in, doesn't it?
0: Can, can I play the part of the old traditional stuck-in-the-mud entitled fan, please? Yes. Because, they're, you know, all of the title themes that we've had, apart from Murray Gold's first and second season, have been not what I like. Because I want the disco theme back, I want it back, and I want it back now. Right? I, I, this is the hill upon which I die. Right? I love that theme. It, it's big. It's expansive. It's got you know wobbly bits. It's brilliant. Let's have that back. Let's not have any more bagpipey, weak and watery, ethereal stuff. Let's have a let's have the theme as a punch in the stomach to say you're coming on a ride with me, and 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 I want the disco theme back. There you are. That's that's as entitled as I'm going to get.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I entered the series with Time Flight uh, season 19 season 20 on PBS so
0: cool, strange, that was, the, Peter that just <laughs>
2: the Peter Howell theme is as much a reason for my becoming a fan as Peter Davison and everything else so when I think of Doctor Who I think of that disco starfield theme that is my Doctor Who Yeah. and yeah. the current version of the opening credits for series 11 series 12 is as close as I have come in the modern series to having the same adrenaline rush that I got as an 11-year-old watching Starfield, listening to the Peter Howell theme back in 1984 and 1985. So this is my favorite version of the theme tune and opening credit graphics since uh, the 1980s. And the stories have not always been as good as the stuff that I fell in love with as a kid. But I have no complaints at all about the theme tune
0: or the opening credits today? Hashtag not my theme tune. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how the first one is the one that gets you, though, because the McCoy theme tune is probably the most unpopular one. Um, but like you said there, it's the one for me, because it was the first one when I was eight years old and I started watching Doctor Who. that does give me the little adrenaline, the little hairs on the back of my neck, still watching the, the Season 26 Blu-ray, which I just got. Um, yeah, it's the one that takes me back to my childhood more than more than any of the others. Uh. And
2: really, season twenty-six, bear you out—you were literally the only person watching. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and look at what they did with the look at what they did with the disco theme in the Five Doctors. They did a little a little mashup, I believe, is what is what they would call it nowadays. Yeah, it, it, it's such a versatile theme. Hmm. So that that's that's my campaign. I want I want the disco theme back, and uh, and I will accept no compromise on this. But, uh, but you're right, I, I, Jason. I have to say, I actually this version, this iteration of the Doctor theme, has a it does have a little. It, it's almost a halfway house between the McCoy theme and the Discourse theme. It has a little, a little ethereal feel to it, and it has a little mystery to it, which I, which which I do welcome.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll sign your petition, Chris.
0: Thank you very much. Join the hashtag. Yeah. Yeah. Not my theme tune. Uh, <laughs> um but it's it, you know it's 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 one of them things that, that's that's about the only that's the only retro view i have the rest i want to see the show pushing forward i i, I not only do i not like the sort of the, those who want to anchor the show in the past i don't understand them Because for me, the show was always about pushing forward. It's always about you know reflecting the society that we're in, reflecting the norms of the society that we're in, and the developments, and looking to the real best bits of of society that we're in. And so, you know, when when I joke about the hashtag, not my doctor lost, it's not that I detest them. It's not that I I just don't understand them. Mm. You know, and I can't understand that perspective because this should be a forward looking thing. You know, but I guess it shows why fandom isn't this gestalt creature. That actually, it's a it's a small associations of groups of friends who like the show. So when we talk about fandom, we're actually talking about nothing. It doesn't really exist, does it?
1: True. True. And I, my experience is very similar to yours. Uh, I well, because I became a fan at the very very end of the classic series. Um, but yeah, for me, it was a very kind of lonely pursuit. Um, because it wasn't even on TV to, to sort of talk to other people about it. It was uh, it was me reading the Target books <laughs> uh, around. Yeah. So when you say Chris, you know, like you, there, there wasn't like he uh, didn't know any of the fans. That that was very much me growing up. Uh, and it is social media that's, that that's put me in contact with other with other people. So it's been a it's been fantastic latterly to uh, to enjoy that.
0: Yeah, absolutely, bring it on again, Um, we've been here before, we know know how good a cliffhanger can can be and a resolution can be, and we also know how bad it can be, so this has been a different, um, this has been a very different season from season 11, so let's hope that the cliffhanger resolution is, you know, is more the, the stolen earth and that type of thing than the battle
1: of raspberry milkshake. (laughs) <laughs> great well thank you very much for joining me guys absolutely not a problem Jason lovely to speak to you sir
2: you too this has been a lot of fun I've learned a lot from listening to you
1: <laughs> Mark a great. pleasure as always my
0: friend
1: yeah, much appreciated it's, uh, it's, it's been an absolute joy and I, I hope we all enjoy the finale and uh, next time we speak we can uh, we can talk about that who have you got lined up for the finale? Uh, we've got uh, Keith, Pete, and Colin. Oh,
0: it's a dream team. So that's a all uh, uh, Yeah, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's that is it. That's that's your, that's your A team. We're a very good B team, but you know, I accept my position. That that yeah. that's a great that's a great one. I'll be looking forward well, to listening to
1: those. That. Those are my timeless children. We're,
0: uh... <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> we're <laughs> your emotional Cybermen. <laughs>
2: Uh, Mark you told me that you forgot to thank me on the air for my little 4 minute insert for the Nicholas Tesla episode.
1: I did. So I did. Thank you for reminding me. Yes. Uh that was that was fantastic very funny uh review of uh of how New York and the USA is is represented in Doctor Who. Um and I think we should expand that to a full podcast at some point. That would be uh that would be a lot of fun to uh, to go through the various appearances throughout the series.
2: Oh, I would be very very excited to do that.
1: Yeah. But I'll um, I, I will defend um Emesis nemesis uh, to my dying breath. So uh,
0: <laughs> you surely should, honey.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you surely should. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Virginia is heaven, if you ask me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> see, that, they, see that's the. Have you ever seen a film called Boarfinger with yes. Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy? Yeah. Yeah, I think Anton Diffring's part in Doctor Who was recorded like Bowfinger. He didn't know he was in Doctor <laughs> Who, right? They just followed the camera around with him, and every so often took pictures of him and and, and got into sort of you know the CGI uniform and stuff on him like that. He didn't look like he had a clue what was going on. <laughs> he even said the only reason that he took that
2: role is because he wanted to go see the tennis. And they offered the free tennis.
1: Yeah, Wimbledon was great result wasn't
2: it? Yeah, be on Doctor Who
1: yeah. by the way. <laughs>
2: It
0: literally okay, did, I mean, it, it didn't diminish the story in any way, you know, I mean, it, the, the, there were plenty of other things that that, that did that, Boo. but um, it was, you know, it was, yeah, it was it, <laughs> Silver Nemesis, blimey. I remember watching that with my dad, and my dad was not a Doctor Who fan, and so we, we he, he, literally all I heard throughout was this sort of director's commentary in the background, <laughs> what is this rubbish you're watching?
1: Well, I recently, I recently appeared on the Real McCoy podcast to defend Sovereign Emesis So, um, I, rather than um, repeat myself, I'll, I'll direct anybody that's uh, that's interested to uh, to, to that uh, that episode of, uh, of that podcast. <laughs>
2: Eric was on Twitter the day before he recorded that playing the audio clip of the crazy lady from Silver Nemesis. We uh, we surely do, honey. <laughs> and then Eric is shouting over that, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> and that was my source. That was my source audio. and That was the inspiration for my four minute commentary for the uh, Tesla episode. Right. So Eric's hate watching of uh, Silver Nemesis on Twitter is indirectly responsible for my contribution to the uh, Track one Tesla episode.
1: Fantastic. <laughs> Cross pollination. That's great. great. So, uh, where can our listeners find you guys on Twitter?
2: I am on Twitter at Dr. Who Novels, Dr. Who Novels, and you can follow my blog, Dr. Who Novels at WordPress. I have gone up and discussed the first four episodes of the season up through Tesla. I have My post's written for episodes five through nine. I just have not got around to editing, posting, and adding funny photo captions. I will have that done before the year 2063,
0: I promise. Great, Jason. I have just followed you on Twitter for my my deep shame. I wasn't following you, but I am now. Um, I am at Cosmic Chris. Uh, Cosmic with a K and Chris with a K.
1: Uh, You can find me on Twitter, I am at Quark McMullis. Thank you very much for listening, goodbye.